You're listening to the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. So we've always said that the Mishnah in Yevamot is not really just defining the process of Yibum, of leveret marriage. I mean, it is doing that tangentially, but what it's really doing is kind of defining the boundaries of marriage itself. When we get on to the tr- next tractate of Ketubot, we'll define really kind of proper behavior within a marriage. But here in Yivamot, we're defining the perimeters of a marriage. And as we jump into the 10th chapter, we're going to look at a situation where two marriages really don't exist. So a woman is married to two different men, and the halakha seems to treat both marriages as if they don't that come that they don't exist. They're they're invalid. Each one invalidates the other, and obviously with tragic consequences. And of course, the problem is a problem of information. I think there's a famous story about this, perhaps written by Agnon. But well, let, let's jump into the Mishnah, and then maybe we'll we'll we talk. Let's jump into the Mishnah. So a woman whose husband has gone to a country beyond the sea. This is the classic case of lack of information. There's a parallel Mishnah in Gittin about someone who comes from a, a country beyond the sea. We don't know whether her get is valid or not. So in this case, the husband has gone to the country beyond the sea. We don't really know what's happening. Communications are not as li- not like they are today. They came and they told her, your husband died. And so she remarried. And afterwards, her husband returned. Gosh, so she's now married to these two men. What, is, what does the Mishnah recommend? She goes forth from both of them. And she needs a get from both of them. And this is really interesting. If the marriages are invalid, why does she need a get? And there seems to be a, maybe there's a rabbinic issue here as well, that um, at least for the sake of appearances, she'd need to get, even though both marriages seem, well, we'll learn as the Mishnah goes on, both marriages are clearly invalid. And yet they still, she still requires a get from both. Why, how can we, how can we say, see that both marriages are invalid? Ain lak tuba. She doesn't get a ketubah from either man. Velo perot and not the fruits, not the essentially the income from her property that her husband operates during the marriage. Velo mozanot, he doesn't have to pay maintenance. Velo velayot, and he doesn't have to um, make up the depreciation. Um, doesn't have to essentially um, pay the depreciation on, on her clothes. Um, he doesn't. None of these obligations are in in are enforced from either husband. And if she's taken any of these these sums from either husband, she has to give them back. 
And the child from either one of them is a mumsare. I mean, we I think we can see why the child from the second marriage is a mumsare, because the second marriage is, is sort of is rendered invalid by the fact that the first husband's not dead. Why the child from a first marriage should be a mum's heir is not quite clear, but the commentators invite us to consider the possibility that after her first husband came back, she went back to him. So in other words, after marrying the second husband, she goes back to the first. And then she has another baby by the, by the first husband after her marriage to the second husband. And that's the situation in which the child from the first husband is a mumsare. The loze veze zakaimla. So sorry, loze veze mitaminla. Neither of them, neither neither of them impurifies himself for her. Now, if you're a kohen, generally you'd stay away from dead bodies. A Kohen doesn't come into contact with a dead body, but there's an exception in the case of a, the wife of a Kohen. The Kohen would render himself impure in, in order to bury his dead, his, his dead wife, but not in this particular case, because as we've seen running down this list, essentially, this is a marriage which doesn't, this is a marriage which which isn't a marriage. It, it's, it's not a marriage. It, it None of the normal links that apply to a marriage seem to apply <clears throat> and we'll see this we'll go through i mean well let's go through let's just go through some more property right this mishnah is very very extensive essentially it's detailing all the property rights and all the relationships which um yeah which define a marriage so we'll see as we go through this essentially we're defining the property relationships and other relationships in a marriage so let's keep let's keep going. Um, Neither of them is entitled to an object that she that they that she finds. So if a woman finds an object, according to classic halacha, that belongs to her husband. and the work of her hands doesn't belong to her husband, but it would in, if she were married. But affair and and they husbands neither husband can annul her vows again in a classic marriage relationship. The husband, if he hears the vow of a wife on the day that it's made, he can annul that vow. But this doesn't apply. If she was the daughter of an Israelite, she she becomes disqualified from marrying a priest. We said before that someone who's become married in a forbidden relationship can't subsequently marry a priest. So that's the result of being in, in these kind of in these two invalid marriages. Um, if she was the daughter of a Levi, she can't eat Maser anymore. She can't eat um, tithes anymore. Because again, her status has invalidated. Well, her status has invalidated her to take part in kind of any sort of any holy act. I mean, it's very interesting if you step back and think about what is going on here. The 
the I mean, the woman in this situation receives a terrible punishment because she's financially she's really, you know, she's completely financially cut off from all previous sources of support. Vat Levi mina Marse, if she's the daughter of a Levi, she can't eat Marse, Ruvat Kohen mina Truma. And if she's the daughter of a Kohen, she can't eat Trum. Ain your shav shall your shav shall your shav shall your shin ktubata. Neither of the neither one's heirs, in other words, neither of her male children, either by one husband or by the other husband, are entitled to inherit her ketubah. And they would normally be entitled to inherit her ketubah. I mean, her ketubah is her property, and, it, and she she can give it to her heirs. But in this case, well, we've said that both marriages are invalid, so the ketubah basically does not exist. So she doesn't have the ketubah. So she's clearly, if she doesn't have a ketubah, she can't pass it on. And if the brothers of either husband die, then she has to perform chalit, so she can't perform yibum. So that's the end of the first part of the Mishnah. And now there will be some descending, dissenting opinions. And remember, we've always said, look, the Mishnah preserves dissenting opinions. Rabbi Yossi seems to believe that the first marriage is essentially valid because he says her ketubah remains a charge on the estate of her first husband, i.e. she can have the ketubah from her first husband. When he when her first husband gives her the get. So Rabbi Yossi seems to recognize, if you like, recognize the first marriage. Whereas the the the, the plain Mishnah seems to take the view that both marriages in some way have become invalid. They both annul each other. Rabbi Elezar Maharishon Rabbi Elazar said, look, the first one is in is essentially gets economic benefits, is entitled to an object that she finds and to the work of her hands and can annul her vows. So Rabbi Elazar, like Rabbi Yossi, seems to recognize the validity of the first marriage. Rabbi Shimon Omer. Rabbi Shimon said, look, a sexual relationship or a chalitza with the brother of the first husband. So now we're assuming that the first husband has really died. I think we're assuming he has really died. A sexual relationship, so now that she can perform yibum with the brother of the first husband. And then, of course, any of her rivals are exempt, and the child, and that child is not a mumzer. And then the Mishnah concludes with an observation that really is connected to the, it's really connected to the following Mishnah, the second Mishnah going forward. So maybe I'm just going to, I'll scroll forward again. We'll try and read this final sentence in the Mishnah, in the first Mishnah of chapter 10, with the second Mishnah. And the end of the first Mishnah reads, If she married without an authorization, in other words, if she married the second husband without an authorization from a bed den, 
muteret lachzoro, she can go back to him. As if, as if if she's taken initiative, perhaps the second marriage really doesn't exist and she can go back to the first marriage. That's how the first Mishnah concludes. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, the opposite case, Nisait al-Pibet din, if she married with the authorization of the court. So she's asked the court whether she can marry. That maybe, you know, news has come from abroad that her first husband died. She consults the bed din. She marries with the authorization of the court. And somehow this puts her in a worst, in a worse situation than if she married without authorization, Tate says she has to be divorced. But uf truha min ha korban. But she's exempt from bringing a sacrifice. The bet din seems to take upon itself the responsibility for the sin offering that would otherwise be required. And the Mishnah explains veshelo al pi bet din Tate say vechayevet bekorban. If she married without the authorization of the court, she must be divorced. But she's and, and she's liable for a sacrifice. And maybe this part of the Mishnah doesn't match perfectly with the end of the previous Mishnah, which says she can go back. She, so maybe maybe she is divorced from. I mean, if we marry together the two Mishnayot. Maybe she's divorced from the second one and brings a korban, but she can go back to the first one. So the authority of the bet din, the authority of the of the court is greater. Because it exempts her from a sacrifice. It's very interesting. The, the, in other words, the the Bet Din can exempt her effectively from a biblical obligation to bring the Korban. What if the court ruled that she could be married and she went and the, the Mishnah says, Kilkala. Kilkala is to, it's really to mess, it's hard to translate. I've translated here on the source, she just messed up. She kind of, she, they gave her permission to remarry, but she just went and did something. She just went and did something wrong. And the intention here is that she entered a forbidden relationship. So maybe, maybe you know, she's a widow now. She married that. Maybe she married a Kohen Gadol, right? A widow can't marry a Kohen Gadol. So she entered into a forbidden relationship. Chayevet ba korban. She has to bring a sacrifice. Shelo hitiruha ela. Because the court only permitted her to marry. And the Mishnah, when it says permitted her to marry, I think the Mishnah is saying the court, when it gave her permission to marry, gave her permission to marry in a legal relationship. So there are certain boundaries. It permitted her to marry, but in a legal relationship. It didn't permit her to marry just anybody. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict.